Hello, dear listener, Vanessa here with a notice I wanted to add. At the time of recording, Alyssa and I did not know that Petra Mayer of NPR Books had passed away, um, and we used one of her articles to discuss the publishing supply chain issues that we discuss in this episode. We extend our deepest condolences to Mayer's family and friends, as well as her co-workers at NPR, and we hope that you enjoy the rest of the episode. Thank you. My name's Alyssa. And I'm Vanessa. And you're listening to Dear Literature, a podcast where two friends discuss books, writing, and publishing. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the publishing supply chain. As always, everything we discuss in this episode can be found in the show notes. Books mentioned in previous episodes can be found all in one place in the spreadsheet available in our link tree. But before that, Vanessa, what have you been up to? Hi, Alyssa. Hi, listener. I've been reading Native Tongue by Suzette Hayden Elgin, which is from Feminist Press. And the premise is that it is the year 2205. The 19th Amendment has been repealed many years ago. Men hold absolute power and women serve as these uh, interstellar translators for the upper class, which are these... Uh, these people called linguists, and they do that for their entire lives, and then they get sent uh, away to die. And then the basically the premise is that that's the world that we're in, but then women start developing a language to, I don't know, allow themselves to have resistance, to take their power back. And it follows two characters, Nazareth and Michaela, who are also seeking their freedom while this revolution is starting to come up. And it's about the power language has for freedom and liberation. Alyssa and I always talk about linguistic imperialism and its opposite language as holding the power for liberation. So it was exciting to see a science fiction work that explores translation and all of that. Also, as somebody who has worked as a translator and is always doing that on or off the clock. (laughs) It's just nice to see somebody like see that as something that has the potential to be in a science fiction world and be you know in that world Mm -hmm. yeah i love like you were saying i love saying language is power especially in science fiction where it can very much be written as an allegory for how like in present day and historically like humans have treated language and it's like history of colonialism it's really interesting to see like xenolinguistics as well as it's like how these women are just going off and are like actually no here's our own language yeah so i'm only like part of the way through it's also really dense but i love it like it like the font is small but i'm okay with it you know it's one of those things (laughs) but how are you Alyssa? how have you been doing I'm doing okay. It's like the last four weeks of the semester, which is absolutely absurd. Uh, Your listener, you're probably going to hear this closer to like when we're done, which is strange. I hate the linear passage of time. Time (laughs) is a flat circle. But I'm doing okay. I decided at the last minute to pivot my thesis And I think it's for the better. It just means that it's more work for me. So I'm writing a lot more um, prose poems right now. And I'm really excited. I'm just trying to figure out, does it work? But right now, it doesn't have to work. These are drafts. They can just end up in the final project. That does not mean that it's final. Mm -hmm. It's just 
basically placeholders, but I'm really excited. I'm trying to crank out, like, two drafts a day, so then I give myself, like, three-ish weeks to, um, revise. So really looking forward to that. That's so exciting. And then recently I read Forget Billionaires, The Future of Literary Magazines Depends on Us by Danae Michelle Norris, and this is on electric literature. Massive caveat. This is basically a funding pitch because (laughs) uh, (laughs) Electric Lit had this campaign of like 12K for 12 years and they hit it. Like they definitely hit it. Um, But just want to caveat that. But this is like both a funding pitch, but also sort of a like a response to um, the Black Mountain Institute, which is hosted out of UNLV. Uh, announced that they would cease publishing The Believer, and The Believer just within the literary landscape, it's been meaningful for like emerging writers, just it's a great magazine, and it's just it's devastating that it's closing. Um, and like along with people who've wanted to like pitch there and have their writing in there, this also the closure also means that a lot of people are losing their jobs. Um, and a quote from the article that I thought was, you know, really contextualizes this is, I'm angry that artistic institutions are forced to operate in a cultural context that so devalues art that a single person or institution can pull the plug. Yeah, this is so important now because, I mean, as we're having like a an international reckoning with billionaires <laughs> because um, a lot of publications have to deal with the situation of, do they accept, like, these really big donors? Do they go for a paywall and, you know, that's not really accessible? Do they do ads on their pages? And that's kind of, like, weird, kind of, like, not transparent either. There's, like, no there's like no way beyond just, like, people, like, the people who are reading it, like, average consumers giving donations. There's no other way around it that is as, like, transparent and true to the practice, if you know what I mean. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that it's really important for these publications that they're getting funding from the people who are actually consuming it, a a wide range of people, um, and that is how you make art that is, like, really striving to, you know, tell the truth and not getting swayed by political economic powers, you know? But it's hard, which is why they Mm -hmm. end up having like a single person or institution funding but then something like this happens with the believer and then you know it it shows you that it's not the way mm-hmm. and then specifically i don't want to like we love electric lit and it's like we like more or less plug them every, every episode, episode. <laughs> yeah but it's just i guess like a more direct plug is the fact that their membership is 60 dollars a year which breaks down into five dollars a month mm-hmm. and um once you're a member, you're able to submit to them, like, any time of the year. Uh, so th- it's, like, if you have the means to and you are a writer, it's a pretty, like, it's a pretty good deal. Like, you can submit, like, any time of the year. And then Electric Lit specifically is a great magazine to get your work into just because you are basically guaranteed to have eyes on your work. Yes, and important eyes as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, importantized people who are, like, agents, editors, etc., etc., as well as just, like, lots of readers, because 
like electric lit has like a very big readership there's no way that they would have raised that you know 12k for 12 years if they didn't have that type of support and there wasn't that like interest in the magazine and like specifically like interest by way of like the work that they're doing that said i think it's time for us to move on because now we're just plugging electric lit um please publish both of us someday though (laughs) please topic of today's episode is publishing supply chain. If you live in the world, you would have heard of the supply chain and how there are issues. Uh, like, I, there's no other way to put it. Um, I don't know where you would have to be to like, if you are listening to this podcast and you have the means to listen to this podcast, there's no way that you have not heard about the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, before we get too deep into this, I want to caveat that when we talk about the supply chain, we are talking about labor, which means we are talking about people. Yes. And there have been supply chain issues by way of just the materials themselves, but someone had to procure those materials, as well as supply chain issues of who is transporting these goods, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to emphasize that, uh, you know, we're talking about people. Um, but for the, we're talking about people, we're talking about labor, but for the purposes of continuity and just, you know, ease of talking about this throughout the episode, we're just going to be referring to it as the supply chain. Getting into it, there's a great primer at First Draft Pod on Instagram, and there's this multi-graphic carousel thing, uh, where the title of it is Books and the Great Supply Chain Disruption. And this focuses on Big Five publishing um, to, like, the big New York houses. Specifically, there may be some differences when you start talking about indie pubs, which I will possibly get into a little later. But specifically, uh, starting here, um, publishing runs on a lean production business strategy called Just in Time, and this helps to reduce warehouse storage and cost with shipments, but leaves room for minimal error. And this comes in because a lot of books are printed abroad, and this is because it is cheaper, as well as many printing presses have closed in the U.S. And at the start of the pandemic, a lot of shipping containers were reallocated to move PPE as well as other essential goods between different countries just because, yes, that was necessary. There were definitely items that were more needed than others. But because of that, um, publishers who were previously running on this kind of like seam of their pants, let's get away with as much as we can model, have upped their orders, which has resulted in full warehouses, which has resulted in major port backups. And then a quote from the graphic, COVID caused key Chinese ports to close and created staffing shortages for port workers and truckers. And this is still the case in like different ports, Um, specifically, I think, Los Angeles, the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach. Um, And if I'm not mistaken, I feel like there is a union strike uh, or there is something that happened. There's some organizing that happened recently, but basically it's a issue of like, union rights, uh, workers' rights, etc. Um, and then related to the port backups, 
another quote is, nearly 13% of the world's cargo shipping capacity is now tied up by delays. And then the Evergreen, which was the ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal, did not help matters. The Suez Canal, um, if this didn't come across in the memes, is also responsible for 12% of world trade. So the ship being stuck there for as long as it was caused a ton of problems. Yeah, so these issues didn't just start out of nowhere. They've been ongoing for a long time. Uh, The graphic series notes that pre-pandemic publishers were dealing with paper shortages. Uh, For reasons that Alyssa mentioned, um, there aren't as many like paper mills being operated. It's hard to you know, make paper, find paper. Um, A lot of pulp is being used for packages because of the increase in online orders. Um, And, you know, because everybody, most people were inside during the pandemic and there wasn't a lot of free movement. People ended up having to order a lot of things. Uh, Printing presses have been shut down, especially domestically, because there wasn't really a high demand for printing in the U.S. Now it's a more um, appealing option concerning all of the shipping issues and increase in prices, etc. And also the demand for printed books increased over the pandemic, again, because people were at home, were experiencing screen fatigue, because they were um, learning and working virtually, at least, you know, some people were. And uh, there's a quote in the piece, uh, in the U.S., 25% of all print book sales take place during the winter holiday season, which is making everything, you know, times 10 because... As if there weren't enough issues with getting the Pope for the books, transporting the books, making sure that the books that need to be in stock are in stock. During the holiday season is when everybody starts getting books again to, to gift, which is why in September and October, bookish people on the internet were just begging people to buy their books during the fall instead of waiting for the winter holiday season because books weren't going to be available and there's going to be a lot of pressure on publishers and Uh, retailers. And then a final quote, normally if quantity runs low for a popular book, reprints can arrive in about three weeks. Now it can take up to three months. We're seeing this problem now because there are a lot of books that have been debuting or were supposed to debut around this time, but because of supply chain issues, debut dates have been pushed back. Um, Books that have been released just haven't been available for some time. Some books are just sold out. And that's really frustrating for writers because, yes, there are ebooks and e-readers available, but uh, as we'll say later in the episode, they're not as popular and print books are still the dominant uh, form of like book publishing. And so for a lot of writers, if their books aren't available in print, like that's it. And that really sucks if you're a debut author because it's like your chance is here, but because of issues completely out of, outside of your control, like global shipping and supply chain and labor issues, like your debut isn't going to have the same impact as it might have had if conditions were different. And we're definitely going to get more into different aspects of this because there's so much of this I want to talk about, especially the like writer side of this. But we're going to go back in kind of in a linear order in the way that we talked about things with some supplemental articles and readings. Um, just because there's been a lot of, I guess, literature on this. There's been <laughs> a lot of buzz and discussion. Um, I, had, I had posted this to... Um, I guess LinkedIn, I'll just say Oh my LinkedIn. god. <laughs> um, but I had posted this to LinkedIn at some point, like, um, I was talking about another thing, 
where uh, the DOJ is suing Penguin Random House, and I was saying, this is big industry news, second only to the supply chain. Anyway, you didn't need to know this, listener. I'm just sharing They really didn't. Details. Anyway, okay. So from Publishers Weekly, the book biz tries to avoid supply chain disruptions, and this is by Jim um, Milliot, who does a lot of like this type of reporting for Publishers Weekly. And recently, there was the Book Industry Study Group virtual webinar. And in this, they're talking about unprecedented shortage of truck drivers and trailers, as well as congestion at ports and escalating transportation costs. Two figures to note are Ingram and Bookazine, who are the two largest trade wholesalers. And there's a quote in their article talking about how Bookazine is increasing inventory by 35 to 40% over the comparable increases it took last year in the same time period. So already from that, it's they were already increasing and it's like even from then, it's just so much worse now. And then from the New York Times, the beginning of the Snowball Supply Chain Snarls Delay Books by Elizabeth A. Harris, a quote from here that I want to highlight is, First, there aren't enough shipping containers. Publishing professionals say that a container, which can hold roughly 35,000 books, used to cost them about $2,500, but can now be as much as $25,000. Which is absurd. I feel like that can't be the norm, but the fact that it can go up that much just because there aren't enough shipping containers and there's such a high demand is... It's ridiculous. Yeah. Clearly, we don't have an infrastructure for dealing with these issues if slash when they happen, which is why the lean model is called just in time. Yeah. I try. I, you know, I'm laughing because if I weren't laughing, I'd be crying. Uh, but yes. I know. It's like, that's why I like, I, it, it, there are different things where it's like, I want to joke about this, but at the same time, there's just like, this is impacting so many people and it's not just like publishing professionals and like people who are in industry it's also impacting the people who are writing these books yeah and from npr we have this piece that gives more context to the situation supply chain issues are slowing down the production of books ahead of the holidays by Petra Mayer. So this is an interview with Candace Hubber, who is the owner of Tubby and Coo's Mid-City Bookshop in New Orleans. And they have a conversation about the paper situation, like uh, Alyssa and I discussed earlier. So there's this quote from Mayer. So to be specific about it, you've probably heard this summer there was a shortage of lumber. That's why your two by fours cost so much more. So you know, guess what else uses lumber? paper pulp and cardboard so pulp is scarce to begin with and then since lots of people are at home ordering stuff online right now most of that pulp is getting bought up to make shipping boxes on top of that there are actually very few physical plants in the u.s anymore that can actually print books and some of them went bust during the pandemic my design professor uh who designs uh, book covers especially cookbook covers was talking about this in class Uh, last week and she was saying how like in the past you might have had like um printing presses or like paper plants in like vermont you know like throughout the u.s and if you did outsource it it'd be like from italy or something but now the majority of these plants are outside of the u.s which is why there's suddenly there's there's this interest now in the plants that are in the u.s because we don't have to deal with circumventing all of these shipping and supply issues 
because, you know, trying to bring something from the outside, you can just use what is inside the U.S. But again, that's not really the situation. Also, as Mayer says, most of the pulp is being used for shipping boxes. And Alyssa and I have talked about this before in my, um, again, the bookish people in my departments talk about it. And it's just like, it's like, what can you do? It's like, that's the situation that we're in. It feels kind of like, I don't know, I feel powerless, like, I don't know, unless I open up a paper plant, I can't really help out. Oh, yeah. Like, it's definitely a thing where a lot of people I've spoken with have expressed that. It's like, yeah, it really feels like the end of the world now that I think supply chain is being brought to the forefront. Where now that, like, all these machinations are just shutting down, literally, then it's like people are becoming much more aware. And regarding the paper or, like, the printing presses and, like, the, like, uh, domestic printers there are so many delays I don't want to get too into it with the publisher that I'm currently working with but it's like right now they're sending out books now for like later in spring releases in order to get them in January and within a week of just sending it out they're already like okay actually there's going to be delays yeah and like they had just sent it out yeah and there's already going to be delays mm-hmm. it's it, it really is just, like, this is upending so many aspects um, of the industry. Yeah, it's been really frustrating. And Hubbard talks about that, too. Uh, there's this quote. So one that I can think of off the top of my head is a book called She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan, which is a great book, and I love it, and I want to recommend it, and I cannot get it because it's been on back order, and that has been really upsetting. Totally agree with uh, She Who Became the Sun. It's one of my like anticipated reads of the second half of the year. So to hear about this is really frustrating. But this exact issue happened to me Last week, I was trying to get my hands on Tastes Like War by Grace M. Cho, really acclaimed book, uh, memoir situation, uh, but it was sold out, and it continues to be sold out, like, everywhere. Okay, I, I, I do want to note with that one specifically, though, it's often indie press, it's feminist press, but it's like, feminist press is a larger press, but it's also important to note with Tastes Like War that it's a National Book Award finalist. Like, Correct. That... That that's also causing a lot of problems, right? Mm-hmm. Where I think there are definitely like big five publishers who have a greater sense of which books are going to like be NBA nominated because there's for the National Book Award there's the uh, long list finalist and then the winner. Even if you're just, it's like even if you're on the long list, that's still like extremely exciting. But once you're a finalist, people are like, okay, I want to read it, right? So. Already you're going to have issues, especially if you're a smaller press um, and just getting all of that. So I just want to point that out of that book specifically. She Became the Sun is also like it was an anticipated release, very like you know, it was full of buzz. It was anticipated release and I feel like it also got um, like big like uh, genre nominations mm-hmm. for things if i'm not mistaken for like nebula and he- i could be making this up but it was highly anticipated like it was no secret that this was like a highly anticipated release mm-hmm. and i think this is also like really exposing how much a publishing is uh, is a gamble yeah because publishers are really just trying to make the best guess as right. to what will sell and what will do well right. um but sometimes they're wrong mm-hmm. well the piece continues to talk about how like this situation is really difficult for debut authors because unlike authors who 
uh, like already have a reputation, like they already have sort of cemented the reputation as much as you can in an industry as, you know, fickle as this one that we're trying to break into. <laughs> so Mayer has this quote, uh, you know, if a debut author is counting on someone hearing about their book and wanting to buy it, but that book is either not printed or it's sitting in a shipping container in a port halfway across the world, that author's in a lot of trouble. And I've seen like various pieces about this, you know, so-and-so has a debut book, they worked really hard on it, it's suddenly very popular, but then nobody can get copies. And that's just immensely frustrating. It affects you know, your sales record, it affects a lot of things. And, you know, it also like, it, it sucks, like it hurts because you spent all this time working on this project. And if you're a debut author, you worked, you didn't have like the understanding that you already have an editor and you already have an agent if you have those things and you know you had to like work really hard to bring this thing into the world and then you bring it into the world during the supply chain issues and you don't know that there's going to be a supply chain issue in 2021 because it takes a year and a half in most occasions to bring a book you know to the world um, I'm saying it like it's a baby or something, but it's... I, I mean, <laughs> yes, people call them book babies. But it takes a year and a half. It's not like people knew a year and a half ago that we were going to have supply chain issues, or at least it wasn't widespread knowledge. So now it's just like we're dealing with the consequences of that. I also have to say that it's not technically a year and a half in terms of like getting a book out. It's more like a year just because you need to get the galleys printed. You want like the review copies out early. You want like the book in the world before the pub date. So from what Vanessa was just saying, like three key points that I want us to hit upon are emphasis on pre-orders, warehouse staffing, and then how the continual shifting of the pub dates are affecting like publicity as well as the book success. So talking about pre-orders, we mentioned this a bit earlier in terms of the impact on publishers as well as booksellers. So from the publishing perspective, if you pre-order a book, it lets the publisher know. This is especially important for like indies who are like, eh, we don't know if people know about us or if people know about this book. Mm-hmm. Um, this is important for indies to know like how many books and like beyond indies, just any publisher, how many copies of this book can we anticipate to sell, right? Of like, who are locked in, these people want these books. So it generates interest and that's good for the writers as well because if there's a ton of people pre-ordering, that means, oh, okay, cool. Like, this is an author who it's like, we trust, we'll sell, right? In terms of bookstores, this can also let them know, like, how many copies of this book should we order? Because, okay, going back a little bit, in publishing, you have what's called remainders. So remainders are like the books that you couldn't sell that you end up just pulping, basically. And for booksellers, I am not super confident on this model. Like bookselling is an aspect of the industry that I'm not as familiar with. But apparently publishing is like one of the last or one of the few industries that has this of like you can return books. So if, like, booksellers are like, actually, no, like, you can return it to the publishers. And, like, this is something that I don't know if it's consistent across, like, indie and Big Five. But my understanding at this is that this is something that can happen at Big Five. And then, you know, you lose some money there in terms of if the books are returned from bookstores. Uh, but talking about booksellers specifically, it just lets them know they 
like it gives them a good sense of what do we need to stock um what are people really excited about and in some cases i would venture to guess also like what book should i read so i can like very enthusiastically recommend this to people Mm -hmm. right um warehouse staffing we started at the beginning of this episode saying we're talking about people we're talking about labor i'm currently working at an independent publisher i'm an intern there and our warehouse is in a state that has some lax covid regulations and it's like this isn't this isn't me shaming the workers at all i and a big thing that I also hope coming out of, like, this whole discussion about supply chain is that states that people you would usually think of as, like, flyover states are crucial to the supply chain because that's where the warehouses are. That's where, like, all these goods are being stored. So in this instance, there's some issues of, like, there's worker shortages and that could be people quitting or getting sick or just, like, a whole variety of reasons. But because there's, like warehouse issues and like staffing issues at warehouses that means that a lot of the time I'm also packing orders Mm -hmm. so for indie publishers it's either they're going through like a um like a warehouse like Ingram um uh Ingram or the other book one I mentioned before (laughs) (laughs) um but like one of the two big like trade warehouses or they're just like sending it from their office or whatever they're based out of um so that's another big like labor thing going on right now in terms of like getting books to people and the like final thing that i want to touch on from what vanessa was saying is how pushing the pub day affects a book's publicity and a book's success so pushing the pub day it's bad for a variety of reasons and we can get into discussion about this but for publicity something that different key points of publicity which is different from marketing um publicity is basically like the uh (laughs) because it's like there's a difference there's like they talk to each other but they're separate marketing is like here are the promotional materials whereas publicity is like reaching out to like different reviewers and like setting up like a press tour typically so getting like advanced reviews of the books getting uh blurbs for the books um and just getting like that buzz started around books and by pushing the date then it gets hard for people to get excited about a specific date um and like in some cases it's just like it's hard to get excited about a book that's kind of in this limbo yeah um and vanessa was specifically mentioning like how not knowing about a book, not being able to get your hands on a book, how that's really impacting like a book success, specifically debut authors. And let's get into that because I think we've reached the portion of here's all the logistics. Let's talk about the author's side because these are, you know, writers and like people who are like trying to break in and just it's publishing is just such a notoriously difficult industry to break into. And these issues aren't making anything better. Yeah, I mean, this is just, this whole situation is causing me so much anxiety. Not just because we're going through it now where we're dealing with the conflicts that we've laid out in this episode, but also I'm like, when I get published, what problems are there going to be? Like, is there, like, what is going to be happening? Because again, we, 
it's really hard to foresee these things because they're all these issues are interconnected as we talked about so it's just hard to see the way things might look in a year or two or three um so I just feel really bad for all the authors that are publishing books right now, especially debut authors. You talked about pre-orders earlier. Pre-orders are really important because they count towards the first week sales for that mm-hmm. book. But imagine like you have this debut date set up for your book and then you have to move it. Also, publishers choose the dates that they choose because they're trying to like curate a certain season and books go in the seasons that they belong in for reasons that you know, publishers choose because they've done all this research on why it should be in that season. So imagine you're moving all of these other books to a different season that affects the books that were in that season. And now it's mm-hmm. like your everybody's schedules is being changed. Um, and the supply chain issues just don't go away. Can you say a bit more about what first week sales means? Why is this important mm-hmm. for publishers to know? And like specifically, how does this impact writers? Why does this feel like an interview? Why does it feel like you're testing my knowledge? Um, I mean, you like, brought it up. I, this is for the listener. Writers always say that pre-orders are important for the first week sales because, again, like it counts towards the sales for the first week. But it like that stuff can like make or break whether you're on like a best-selling bestsellers list. It affects how publishers see the demand for your book because if they see these high numbers in the first week, they're like, oh, this book is going to be really popular. Maybe we should invest more money in, you know, marketing and publicity, uh, getting more copies, you know, and furthering this author's career in the long term, especially if they're a debut author, because they don't have a sales record yet. You don't know how they perform. For authors that have five, six, you know, 20, 30 books out, you can basically gauge the average of how they're going to be doing. But with a debut author, you don't know until you know. And that's why first week sales are so important. But in a supply chain issue during a pandemic, like what is being experienced now, first week sales are being affected because nobody can get their hands on the books. Um, Nobody wants to wait six months for a pre-order. And again like it's it's basically skewing the way these publishers see their authors because if these situations weren't being if these situations weren't occurring the publishers might see the authors in a different way because there would be normal conditions and so the book would be selling normally but with supply chain issues they're not selling normally and so publishers are just you know making decisions on authors that could be really damaging and frustrating for them And, like, another big thing to highlight from that is also there's just so much news that people just aren't paying attention to book news. Like, especially last year in the early months, it's like, are you going to pay attention to, like, this mysterious virus that's killing a lot of people that people don't know about? Or are you going to, like, pick up a new book? And, sorry, that was, like, kind of crass in, like, the way that I put that, but it's just where are people's attentions and there's just like such an inundation of information last year that it was hard to keep track and like even right now debut authors right now because of all the financial losses that happened last year and are still happening to a lot of people maybe the money that they had previously to spend on books they just like don't have that like that flexibility right now and um Yeah, so sales track record, that's something that Vanessa said. That's something that's going to be very difficult 
moving forward for a lot of the people who published, like, currently and last year. And, like, end of 2019 as well, honestly, just because it's, like, that beginning of 2020 period. It's, like, you're still counting that, but then it goes on a downtrend because people just don't know or have forgotten about your book of when you're trying to, like, pitch your next book to... Not pitch, but anyway. Basically, when you're trying to get a new publisher to like buy your next book they're gonna look at okay what's your like sales track record oh that's kind of bad it's like there is a patent yeah damn i'm just i'm getting very emotional about this there is yeah um but it's the fact that like what sales are happening now are going to so greatly impact um just like how a book sells in the future it's it, like it's like oh my god yeah. and um i know this one professor who it's like her book came out in june of last year and it's like you already know like the sales of that book are that's rough mm-hmm. <laughs> like she was a debut author yeah so it's like wow that's rough um and you had mentioned like breaking into the industry but also, I think some something that I don't know if we've discussed on the podcast before was there was a lot of layoffs at a lot of big five companies as they were trying to figure out how do we, you know, money, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, like, there was a lot of... There's a lot of layoffs, and that's also something to mourn in terms of just these are people who lost their job um, in a very difficult industry that, frankly, you don't make a lot of money. Um and that was, like, another thing that happened in publishing last year. Uh, along with that, publishing has definitely gotten more conservative, specifically in terms of, like, what they are publishing. And, like, not necessarily material-wise, but I mean this from, like, a business perspective of... And this relates back to the um, the sales of, okay, we know that these people have, like, sold lots of units before and have like this track record of being new york times bestsellers they have a huge fan base i'm thinking of like the 2010s authors who are kind of just like milking all their series now yeah and their ip vibing just <laughs> yeah and yeah. it's like we're gonna publish more of what you have because we know that your name attached to this book will sell mm-hmm. and then it's, it's just gonna be harder for debut writers who don't already have like some sort of following some sort of exactly like, yes profile background whatever to be published yeah i was thinking about this too because i feel like there's definitely a shift in the way that everybody in publishing uh editors and agents approach potential authors because we've been through this pandemic we're still in the pandemic we experienced um these like messed up sales records and books just not getting to the people. Now we're dealing with the supply chain issues, TM. And I just feel like everybody's just way more cautious about the projects that they take on because so much money has been lost and they just like can't emotionally or financially afford, or, you know, in quotes, because if we're talking about big five publishers, I think they could afford a little bit of a loss, you know, not the same thing for an indie, but they they believe that they can't afford to take a loss on something that might be more experimental a writer who doesn't have a following and so it's kind of like who are you why don't you know why aren't you an instagram influencer or like a youtuber or something um and 
it's, it's like, I don't know, it's like already hard for people who don't have that sort of padding to break into an industry that is very money focused, despite being a creative field. And so like, imagine now it's like, everybody's being more cautious about the kinds of projects they're taking on and are just trying to find something that will no matter what sell. And it's hard to deal in absolutes in an industry that is so fickle. Because it's, it's run by people, and people are buying books, and tastes change, and interests change, you know, trends come and go. So how can you say that what's happening now will continue to be popular in two years? Yeah, I mean, like, publishing really is just glorified gambling in terms of where are you placing your stake of what will sell? And it's like, in many times, there's definitely examples of people who are wrong, um, because it's like publishers like there's the publishing houses and there are the publishers and the publishers are like acquiring editors essentially and they're determining what gets published and like Vanessa was saying these are people and they all have their own taste they do have a taste in terms of like their specific house or their imprint that they are acquiring for but these are people at the end of the day um also on the more snarky remark I actually no. I'm re- I'm gonna withhold that snarky remark because I'm applying to jobs right good, now. Good, so, good, good. Yeah, I, I will. Yeah, I'm a I'm gonna withhold that snarky remark. Just performing double think on yourself. Nice, nice. I know. It's like, I mean, but interesting that you brought up earlier in the episode about the Simon and Schuster uh, situation. <laughs> Do I want the merging? Um, would random yeah, house. I guess it's like we we should just go into that a bit more. I'm sorry I interrupted you. I mean, yeah, so we talked about the merging earlier. You talked about the merging earlier. And that definitely affects things because it's not like any time there's a merging of publishers that they keep all of the workers and pay them a living wage. Like there's going to be layoffs, as you said earlier. Do you want to fight back on something that I said? Would you like me to revise something? No, I'm not going to fight back on it. It was just, that's the, I don't, okay. I don't think it's a secret, but um, I don't like the New York Times. And I think it's like, <laughs> the specifically why I don't like the New York Times mm-hmm. is I find like a lot of the reporting like incomplete. And aside from the reporting, their op-eds, what they publish, I, they need to stop. Anyway, this isn't a bash the New York Times thing because um, I'm pretty sure they broke the news or they were like Mm -hmm. one of the big ones that broke the news of how the department of justice is suing penguin random house Mm -hmm. because uh penguin random house whose parent company is bertelsman was slated to acquire simon and schuster Mm -hmm. which is another big five company Mm -hmm. and something in the article that just was very frustrating to me was the fact that there is no conversation at all about the impact on workers because it's like in the mergers like the merger between penguin and then random house Mm -hmm. that wasn't that long ago there's lots of people who lost jobs and a lot of the times the people who lose the jobs are in lower positions and the people who are occupying these like lower positions in the publishing hierarchy tend to be of marginalized groups yeah so that's already happening we're having merger after merger uh lower paid people are being laid off and then what happens when there's a merger you have a smaller pool 
of editors that can take on an assignment. And a lot of publishing houses have a rule where multiple editors can't like fight to acquire something. You know, it's just like the one editor represents the publishing house and if they pass on it nobody else can take it you know nobody else can put their hand in the ring or whatever and and take a stab at it so every time that there's a merger there's just a smaller and smaller pool of editors who can acquire your project you being the person who is crazy enough to try to publish in this this absolute you know dog park of an industry and Again, like, fewer and fewer chances, fewer and fewer chances, because, you know, less editors means less opportunities. So I'm happy that there was a blocking of that merger because it, I don't know, I'm just seeing, I'm seeing 1984 in some kind of future. It's just like, there is one publisher. We publish one kind of book. And that's really scary. Yeah, it's... uh... (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean i don't want to distress noises i i've seen a lot of people being like we're starting with books um i mean my last thought on this is that presumably they're starting here because it's more clear-cut than i think the example that a lot of people want which is big tech but there's a lot of politics with that in terms of who gets the money and also do politicians really understand the implications mm-hmm. no provably not many of them don't so it's like books are the most direct way, but I think also saying that books don't have a purpose in today's society in terms of their impact in ideas mm-hmm. and cultural um, is false, and to believe that is not great. Yeah. Uh, and that's all we're going to say about the DOJ suing Penguin Random House. Well, but- final note. If anything, the supply chain issues have proven how immensely important books are to our culture. And, you know, writers, authors, especially debut authors, keep your heads up, (laughs) please. And for readers out there, oh, pretty please, pre-order your books, um, help a writer out, um, and stay on top of those books and keep your eyes on them, especially those by debut authors. Don't just let them slip through the cracks. Please keep track of them because those people need every order that they can get. Also, if you're not able to pre-order, retweeting and sharing posts to your story is free. <laughs> Okay, signing off, because this, we kind of lost the train of the conversation at the end there. We're in our reading recommendations. Vanessa, what do you have for me today? Today, I have, surprise, surprise, a podcast episode. That might actually be a surprise. I usually recommend articles. Um, This episode of the Ezra Klein show from the, sorry, Alyssa, New York Times, (laughs) is called... (laughs) Two acclaimed writers on the art of revising your life. Um, I've also put a transcript for Alyssa, and I'll also put it for you, listener. Um, This was a homework assignment from my professor, again, the the, um, book designer that I have mentioned in various episodes because she always gives us homework. (laughs) But this assignment was really great because... This episode of the Ezra Klein show was guest hosted by Tressie McMillan Cottam 
featuring Kiese Lehman, and Lehman made news for buying back the rights of his two books at 10 times the price, oh my god, and heavily revising one of them. That book is called How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. And this is like a shocking thing for a lot of people. It's like, why would you buy back the rights? Why would you revise? Why can't you leave things the way that they are? Um, and both in the podcast episode and in a literary hub essay that Lehman wrote, uh, he talks about basically the story of why he decided to buy back his rights. Uh, basically, the, the short of it is, is that during COVID, he experienced a lot of loss around him, a lot of uncertainty, and he knew that he could be especially affected by COVID and that there was a possibility that he could actually die from it if he contracted it. So basically, his whole mentality behind buying back the rights is that he didn't feel like the editors of his books appreciated his talent and if he was going to end up passing away, he would rather buy back the rights and spend that money, really put something out there that he was proud of and let that be his lasting legacy. And that's like really intense to think about yourself and your writing like that. But it was just a really fascinating episode. Um, and there's a quote that Lehman has from the podcast where he's basically talking about like revision, the way he approaches it. And Kadam is basically like asking him like, you know, how's like, how's it possible for you to approach revision this way? Like explain like how you basically like how you approach revision, like how you approach writing. And uh, Lehman says, um, when I get on that page, I'm scared, but like that fear just kind of like is always met with something. And often that fear is met with my trying to use an assemblage of languages I haven't seen before. I just think if I can write, it's because I'm unafraid to fail in that medium. I'll try anything. I'll write anything. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean you're going to see it, but it means that I will try anything on the page. And I really admire this mentality of like moving past fear of revision, not pretending like he's not afraid of writing or afraid of revision or afraid of confronting himself on the page, but just like recognizing that and then moving on and deciding to be better. Um, I'm really inspired by that because I have the opposite problem of a lot of people where I'm like, a lot of people have this thing where like they can't stop revising because they can always be better. And because of that, they can feel really like stagnated and like they can never move on for a project. I'm the opposite where I tried to get something perfect the first time around and I have a hard time accepting criticism, not because I think that I'm better than other people or that other people can't supply feedback, but I am ashamed of the fact that I have to revise. And I'm ashamed mm -hmm. of the fact that I didn't predict other people's, unless it's, I know it's ridiculous, but please just let me have my moment. And I'm not, I'm like not just embarrassed of having to revise, but I'm embarrassed that I didn't predict the people's comments in the first place. But this podcast was such a good like wake up call. Like, hey, you can always be better and that's okay. And you don't have to shame, you don't have to be ashamed of the potential you have to be better. Because it's better to be better one day than to just be stagnant forever, you know? So good lessons for me as somebody who wants to make everything perfect the first time around and no such thing exists. Content notes for the podcast and the essay, deaf, specifically COVID deaf and health anxiety around COVID. Other content notes for the podcast would be racism, specifically anti-black, fat phobia, and sexual assault of minors. We really transition from some amount of uh, rage 
in the main body of our episode into grief and death into our reading recommendations Mm -hmm. because uh like thank you for that recommendation first off and for what i have for you today is my mom princess diana and me by matt ortile and this is on catapult and let me read you this first line i remember the day she died i think that is the opening line of this essay um this essay is part of the distance at a or excuse me grief at a distance column that Ertile writes and this whole column is about dealing with his mother's death um she passed away from cancer in manila during the covid19 pandemic when he was not able to go home and visit her um and then it's this whole column is like him dealing with his grief of that and in this essay it's really operating on the elasticity of memory and there's a lot of questioning of do i remember this do i not remember this and where princess diana comes in is how Ertile has always conceived of princess diana and like his mother kind of in the same vein in terms of like when he was like five or six trying to figure out or, like, trying to get the scope of the death of Princess Diana and, like, what that tragedy meant and, like, what that meant historically. And grappling with that and how he kind of came to knew, like, know as much as he could um, through just different media and such about Princess Diana as well as, like, his mother. Because when he... I, I want to say 14... But his mother, he and his mother, like, moved to the States. Um, And then just his relationship with his mother and then this through line of Princess Diana in his life. And then once his mother passed away and then he woke up to, like, all these calls and messages, finding out that his mother passed away, just what that grief was and, like, what that meant to him. Um... I think it's, like, a really beautiful, beautiful essay at, like, a craft level in terms of, like, the questioning and the way that it's constructed, as well as just, like, it's in, like, a cultural lens, but also just, like, this is a son who is mourning the loss of his mother, and I don't want- it's weird for me to call it beautiful because it's just, like, that is, like, it's mourning, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's, like, a very- touching tribute i would say in terms of like how ortile is trying to remember his mother Mm -hmm. and how like he doesn't want to just remember her in grief Mm -hmm. and then you know content notes for death and grief um in this Mm -hmm. using um collective grief to discuss personal tragedy can be a really powerful mode of Mm self-reflection a lot of people talk about where they were when Princess Diana died in the same way that they would say, like, where were you during the Kennedy assassination? Where were you during 9-11? Where were you during this? Where were you during that? And the way that we collectively experience things and connecting that to things that are deeply personal, um, I think there's something really fruitful there as a writer. Thank you for that recommendation. Thank you for listening to this installment of Dear Literature. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. This helps people find us and lets us know what you like about the pod. You can follow us on Instagram at DearLitPod. That's D-E-A-R-L-I-T-P-O-D. We post some content there that you won't hear us discussing here. 
If you've read anything that we discussed in today's episode, leave a comment and let us know your thoughts. The music you heard in this episode was composed by Ben Solzinski. You can find more of his work at bgsmusic.com. The cover art for this podcast was made by our very own Vanessa. Until next time, happy reading. Pre-order your books, please.